All right, brothers and sisters, I'd ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 8. The uh, eighth psalm is what we'll be considering tonight. Psalm 8. So, please hear with me a reading of God's Word in Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Gatith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field. The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Thus far is the reading of God's word. So, brothers and sisters, let's begin by looking at the structure of this psalm. The psalm begins and ends, of course, as is very apparent, with this declaration of God's majestic name, his majestic character and actions. And in between these two declarations, we have two movements from heaven to earth. The first of these movements is in the last part of verse 1 and all of verse 2. We start in heaven there when the psalmist says, You have set your glory above the heavens. And then we move in our minds to earth where he says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants. So our gaze starts in heaven, verse 1, moves, uh, works its way down to earth in verse 2. So the second movement then from heaven to earth is uh, found in verses 3 through 8. It begins with heaven again. He says, when I look at your heavens. And then the response to that look of the psalmist is focused once more on earth, where he says, what is man that you're mindful of him being on earth? Right. So the gaze goes from heaven down to earth once, heaven down to earth again. And even these kind of bookend declarations of God's majesty in verses 1 and 9, they too follow this pattern of moving from heaven to earth. We have the Lord in his heavenly majesty, right? his heavenly majestic splendor. And then that splendor is displayed not only in heaven, though it is displayed there, but also in all the earth. So we see this uh, threefold movement in the words and minds of the psalmist um, from heaven to earth in this psalm. And this reminds us of the Son of Man that's spoken of later in this psalm, who came from heaven to earth to be a propitiation for our sins, who came to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Well, then let's consider in more depth the declaration, these two declarations at the beginning and the end of this psalm of God's majestic name. Uh, As we read the psalm with understanding, we're praising in song the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, the Lord. That's his covenant name. He makes covenant. He keeps it with his people. And furthermore, we're personally and directly related to him. He is our Lord, our Master. 
And the way that we are related to him is through the gracious new covenant. And of course, in that covenant, we've been united to Christ in a spiritual and living and eternal union. In this union, our sins have been forgiven, having been paid for by Christ, having been transferred to him in full and paid for by his blood. And his perfect righteousness then has been imputed to us. So he gets our sin, we get his, his righteousness, so that it's as if we had never sinned nor been a sinner, in the blessed words of that uh, catechism, I think it is. Now, David, the human author of this psalm, knew of this blessedness, according to Romans 4 and Psalm 32. And so do we. We're just like David in this respect. We know of this blessedness too. We who have entered into the new covenant of grace uh, through faith in Christ. So this Lord then truly is our Lord. Not just some Lord somewhere. He is our Lord, our covenant Lord. Now through this psalm we extol the name of the Lord, His character and His actions. That's what His name is. We confess that His character and actions are majestic or marvelous. We declare that this is the case not in a geographically isolated sense, but in all the world. So the question then becomes, how exactly is our Lord's name majestic in all the earth? Well, that's what the rest of this psalm guides us to consider and to pray and praise back to the Lord for ourselves. To summarize it, uh, the Lord's name is majestic in these two ways in this psalm. So these will be our two points. First, God uses the weakest of human creatures to confound his enemies. That's the first two verses of this psalm. And second, God especially favors and cares for man despite our relative insignificance. And that's verses 3 through 8. Or more succinctly, if you're taking notes, point number one, confounding. Point number two, caring. So we've got confounding enemies, caring for man. All right. So let's focus first on our Lord's universally majestic name in his confounding his enemies using well, the weakest of human creatures to do so. That's how powerful he is. So let's look at that. Verses 1 and 2. We're told that the Lord, our Lord, has set his glory above the heavens. So whatever we can see as we look up into the night sky and whatever exists beyond that sky and into the heavens and beyond all of that, actually, is where God's glory is set, said to be set. And beyond perhaps what David would have fully understood, we know that God the Father has set his Son, his own glory, above the heavens, beyond the heavens, when he raised him from the dead. Um, I trust this is not a stretch. We have Psalm 24 that calls Jesus Christ the King of glory. Isaiah 40 and 60 speak of him as the glory of the Lord. This is our Jesus, the glory of the Lord. James calls the Son of God the Lord of glory. And then Hebrews speaks of Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God. It's as if God has glory and Jesus is that very glory emanating out. And then uh, to cap this off here, John the Evangelist says something that I don't think any of us would have expected in, I believe it's John 12, where he's referencing back to Isaiah 6. And Isaiah 6 is, of course, the passage where uh, the Lord is, is uh, seated on his throne in the temple. Uh, the glory is, is emanating around him. The seraphim are praising him. And, uh, and holy, holy, holy. And John says, 
Isaiah said that because he saw Christ's glory and wrote of him. So the angels, the seraphim, are really in, in effect in that passage in Isaiah 6 saying, the whole earth is full of Christ's glory. From even the Old Testament there. So, this glory that is our Lord Jesus Christ was set above the heavens when, after his crucifixion and resurrection, he was raised from the dead and at last ascended above the heavens. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 that Christ who descended from heaven to earth has also ascended far above all the heavens. Our Lord passed through the heavens and is now exalted above those heavens according to Hebrews 4 and 7. And the uh, an extra wonderful uh, element of truth here is that because Christ, our exalted head, is at that place right now in the heavens, exalted above the heavens, so too spiritually are we. We are with him in the heavenly places according to uh, Ephesians 2.6. We've been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Right now, it doesn't feel like that. We can't sense that, but spiritually that's where we are because we're united to Christ. Now, it's from that uh, highly exalted position that our Lord now exerts his power on earth in the sense of what we read in verse 2. Certainly, uh, the Lord can and does silence his enemies through physical babies and infants. He can do that, and he does that. The intricate way that babies are formed in the womb and how they're sustained in their earliest years, all of that speaks volumes as a testimony to God's awesome power as we see it in the development and care of the smallest and most insignificant of human creatures. But we're also reminded that our Lord quoted this exact verse when he entered Jerusalem for the final time in his earthly ministry. You recall that the chief priests and scribes Uh, They were seeing the glorious things that Christ was doing. Um, They saw that he was cleansing the temple of his enemies and caring for people um, in what he was doing in his uh, healing the blind and the lame. So even then, in the Gospels, he was doing exactly what we hear of him doing in Psalm 8, that he's confounding his enemies and caring for man and especially his people. So these, these scribes and chief priests, they saw this. They took it in. They saw it with their own eyes. But their response was hard-hearted indignation. It was not praise like this psalm is calling for. It was hard-hearted indignation. And in response to their criticism of him, Jesus quoted this very verse in Matthew 21. And you might remember how those chief priests and scribes responded to Jesus quoting this verse. They were silent. (laughs) They were stilled. There wasn't anything they said Um, in response to that. And brothers and sisters, we are those little children. Spiritually speaking, we are those little children. Jesus thanked the Father that He had revealed and still does reveal the things of the kingdom of heaven to us little children while He hides them from the wise and understanding of this world. In Matthew 11. Not many of us were wise or powerful or noble when God called us through the gospel And yet he uses us weak and feeble creatures to shame and confound those who are wise and strong in this world. Now, what is the impact of us praising the Lord even in the presence of his enemies? What what does that do? 
the psalm here tells us that they are ultimately stilled. The enemies are ultimately stilled. The word there is Sabbath. That's the Hebrew word Sabbath. They're caused to rest or to cease, to stop. So as the church proclaims God's law in this world, the result is that every mouth is stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God, according to Romans 3. God causes the majority of his enemies to cease in this way. But as we also proclaim God's glorious gospel, the Lord sees fit to give his elect rest, spiritual Sabbath rest, as those who once formerly were Christ's enemies, you and me, laboring and heavy laden as we were, we come to him and take his yoke upon us. And we learn that that yoke is easy and that burden is light, don't we? Isaiah even says um, in the follow-up to the glorious 53rd chapter of that, of that prophecy, um, he's talking about, uh, the Lord is talking about his servant. And he says this, that kings shall shut their mouths because of him, because of my servant. For that which has not been told them, or the gospel, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. They see and understand. Some of these kings do. They end up seeing and, and understanding. And the Lord gloriously saves them, gives them rest in that way. And so, brothers and sisters, let's not be ashamed to open our mouths and proclaim law and gospel as God gives opportunity to us. Let's not be ashamed of that. And and especially and even in the presence of God's enemies, we might think, well, we've got some enemies of God's, God here. I'm not going to, I don't really want to say too much. You know, let me be quiet. But no, even in their presence, especially in their presence, uh, let's be prayerfully seeking to proclaim that, that truth to, to them. God will use that proclamation according to his will, whether to condemn the reprobate who have no interest whatsoever in Christ anyway, or to gloriously save his people, his elect. And he'll do all of that through the means of our stammering and stuttering tongues. And all of our deficiencies and everything else, the Lord will still He'll use us. He'll use his message, his word, his gospel and law. So we've meditated on the Lord's universally majestic name. First, in his using the weakest of human creatures to confound his enemies. We saw that in verses 1 and 2. And now secondly and lastly, we'll consider our Lord's universally majestic name in his special care for man despite our relative insignificance in verses 3 through 8. So again, kind of getting back into verses 3 and 4, we see uh, just once more this movement right from heaven to earth as the psalmist's contemplation of the heavens leads him to consider man's place in God's earthly creation. We saw that, as I said, in verses 3 and 4. So compared to the awesome work of God in the creation of the vast, expansive heavens, mankind seems so insignificant, don't we? You think of the Hubble telescope and everything like that that shows us you know, light years into the, into the universe and then we look at our own little planet in our own little galaxy and such and it's just like, what is man? You ask that along with David. Why would God care for man when he's created other things that are so much larger and more glorious and more you know, impressive? Why would he care for us? And yet our God is mindful of us and he does care for us. He demonstrated that in how he originally created us. That's what verses 5 through 8 tells us. Despite us being nothing compared to the glory of the heavenly bodies, yet God has made mankind just below the heavenly beings. Mankind has been put in the position of ruling over all of God's good creation. How glorious that is. 
I think that's what the, the psalm is expecting us to say. That is glorious. Wonderful. And yet, man fell in Adam. Our original covenant had when Adam sinned against God and broke the covenant which God made with him in the garden. And so now, you know, concerning all these things that God had originally put under our feet that we're supposed to be like excited about and glorifying God for, we really do have to admit with the author of Hebrews, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, to man. We, not everything is subjected to us. We don't have that at this point. In other words, if you're looking at this part of Psalm 8, and then you turn your gaze to our current world, <laughs> it's not all matching up in some ways. But that's because, that's intentional actually, it's because Psalm 8 isn't just about us. It's not all about you and me, directly at least, and immediately. It's not just about the first Adam and his posterity. It actually was intended by God to point forward to the last Adam and those whom he represents. This is one reason why the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry took to himself this title, Son of Man, um, from this very psalm and other passages, but, but certainly from this psalm. He's the one in whom this psalm finds ultimate fulfillment. So the first Adam was indeed created a little lower than the heavenly beings, just like this psalm says. And so was our last Adam, according to his human nature in the Incarnation. Our first Adam, or the first Adam, I should say, was crowned by God with glory and honor by being made as the pinnacle of the creation week. And he was given authority to rule over God's first and earthly creation. Our last Adam was crowned with glory and honor in his being raised from the dead after suffering for our sins to pay in full the penalty due our sins. The first Adam had all of God's creation put under his feet and he lost it all through his sin, through his disobedience. But our last Adam, through his obedience, is now sitting at God the Father's right hand until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet as he currently rules in the midst of those very enemies, according to Psalm 110. Our last Adam must continue to reign until he has finally put all of those enemies under his feet according to 1 Corinthians 15. And the glorious reality is that we are some of those who were once Christ's enemies and we've been put under his feet. We've been put in subjection under our new covenant head, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, replacing the covenant headship of the first Adam over us. And so these realities are what God has done for us in our glorious last Adam. But there's, of course, even more to come for God's blood-bought saints, you and I. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2. You might think that Adam had it good when he was granted dominion over the works of God's hands in this first and earthly creation. But what, what about what lies in store for us in the new creation? With no sin or death or devil, all things made new, every enemy subdued, no crying or pain or anything like that, what will that be like? And so, brothers and sisters, what's, I would just ask, what's troubling you about your present situation? There's plenty, I'm sure, if we were to open up the floor as we will as we go to prayer. There's a lot, isn't there? There's a lot that really troubles us. 
Um, there's a lot in this first and earthly and fallen creation that causes us distress. But be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven in Christ. He has taken care of your biggest problem, the thing that you could never do anything about. He has taken care of that in, in Christ. Comfort one another with these words, that the Lord is reigning right now, and he's sovereign over all of your afflictions, not over just the good stuff and the blessings, over the bad stuff, over the stuff that hurts and the stuff that's painful. He is sovereign over all of that. And he will return for you as he comes to finally still all of his enemies and put them under his feet once for all and to give us, his people, eternal rest. You and I, whether it looks like it or not, we now reign in this spiritual kingdom of Christ where everything is being renewed. It's not new yet, but it's being renewed. It's all being made new. We're being made new. And one day it will finally and completely and perfectly be renewed when our Lord, the Son of Man, that last Adam, returns to fully restore his entire creation. And so I trust in our hearts, you know, there's prayer and praise just kind of welling up in us as we say with the psalmist to end the psalm, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So brothers and sisters, please join your hearts with me as I lead us in prayer and praise to our majestic Lord. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that the afflictions that we experience in this life are not to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us and in us in that last day. And uh, we thank you that you will do that in spite of your enemies, in spite of our enemies. Uh, we thank you that we have this, we have these blessings apart from any work that we've done. And that it's all Christ, and it's all Christ's work. He has done it all. We praise you for your majestic, holy, perfect name. And we pray that you would give us boldness through this week to proclaim your law and gospel and to do it right and to do it well. To share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ with those who are lost and even to fellowship with believers who know it and who just need to hear it maybe a little bit more. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.